All right, Rupa, welcome to the, the Psych Guys podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, it's an honor. It's a really good setup here too, so I'm impressed. Right, it, it is a professional studio after all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> studio, studio day. Uh, well, I guess I'm not gonna give my location. That'd be weird. But yeah, we're stoked uh, to have you here. We're gonna record two episodes with you, and the first topic we're gonna talk about is is super challenging, in my opinion. Um, I think uh, all of us have personal experience with this. We're gonna talk about um, healthcare workplace violence, um, and all of us, all of us, obviously work in a psychiatric realm. We're all psychiatry residents. Um, you're a second year psychiatry resident here at our program. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's start it off with, I guess I'll, my first question to you, Rupa is why did you want to talk about this today? I think it's something that in my experience, in my one year of experience, uh, it's just not talked about enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's also, um, it's very easy to get comfortable on the psych ward. Um, you kind of get into complaints to see, and we kind of let our guards down. So I think, you know, just to always be mindful about, the actual risk that we have in in our fields and constantly being reminded about it is important. And then starting up those conversations of how we can only, not only can, how do we defend ourselves, but also how we ask administration um, for help and support in, in our, you know, in our endeavors on the psych ward, so. I think that was well said. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me is this concept of uh, complacency. I think just by the, the virtue of um, being in an inpatient psychiatric unit, day after day after day, year after, I mean, week after week, you just kind of lose the perception that there is actually a, a risk for real violence for people to get hurt. And I think, you know, it was all my heart to want to do this episode because like you said, I think we all need to step back and be reminded um, of the potential dangers because it is a fact that workplace violence is on the rise. Um, we're going to be discussing it in terms of the psychiatric setting, especially in terms of inpatient units and maybe even the emergency departments. Um, but it is a fact that workplace violence is on the rise in all different professions. And that is one of the issues that we want to highlight on this episode. So I think this is a great place to start. I'm going to read you guys something that I found in my research. So. According to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, hospitals are one of the most dangerous workplaces in the United States. You guys heard that before? No, but it does kind of shock me. Why, why, does, why does it shock you? I think because we always think of a hospital as a safe place. Um, you know, everyone's kind of taking care of e each other. And I'd like to believe that, you know, maybe I'm biased that this, the hospital is, you know, a sanctuary um, and that it's just a place where people take care of each other. So imagining, you know, in, a, in the regular hospital, irrespective of being in the psychiatric, like a hospital or the unit, I've never really felt unsafe. That's interesting. Um, so I'm going to throw some numbers out at you, Rupa, okay. uh, maybe challenge those perceptions a little bit more. Uh, so I actually read that one in four ED nurses actually are victims of violence. In the workplace so that is mm. that is a very significant number i mean one yeah. in four that's a lot i mean these are people who um, have a good heart right i don't think anybody goes into the medical profession let alone an environment like the emergency department um given all their challenges and the complexity and the acuity of the cases that they take care of um, without the desire want to help their fellow man right and i think it's unfortunate especially when you take the context that healthcare professionals are in shortage all over the united states 
Um, that's especially true when we look at psychiatric settings. Um, but healthcare in general, we need more good people. We need people with um, with a heart for patient care. We need people that are willing to go the extra miles for the patients that they take care of. Um, and we need to foster a system where we're encouraging individuals um, and saying, hey, this is a great environment to work in. This is a this is a job where you can find a lot of contentment, where you can do a ton of good. And I worry with um, the escalation in violence, um, especially in the hospital settings, that it may be an impediment to that ultimate goal. So if it's OK with you guys, I'd like to play a little game of trivia. All right. I got some numbers. Okay. I'm going to throw, throw some questions out at you. OK. All right. Number one. Violence against healthcare workers is blank times higher than the rest of the professions in the United States. Oh, I guess compared to all professions? Yes. I might say 10, I guess. I think I'll say 10 too. 10 times? Wow, you guys you guys are close. Um, well, I mean, look, I used to be an insurance agent. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, that's like 100, you know? Like, the more, I don't know. Like, um, But I guess then when we factor in professions like, you know, the police, that, that I, I would hope is in some regard higher than a healthcare worker. But I, I, I mean, it, it has to be, right? Like, but I don't know. So what is it? All right, so the answer is violence against healthcare workers is 12 times higher than the rest wow. of the United States. I can't believe I shorted that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, you guys um, came pretty close. I thought you guys were going to say it maybe like two times, three times. That's kind of uh, that's kind of what I was I thinking. I mean, I've been cheating this whole time, and I looked at it. <laughs> I, I actually did guess. Yeah. yeah. So, wow. I mean, and I guess what I would, though, push against that in some regard um, you know, I, when I was researching this for this episode, I didn't really find the historical trends. So I'm actually excited to learn, excited in a sad way, um, like how this has changed with time. Because one of the things I was looking at was this meta-analysis and it was saying, okay, well, what is the definition of violence against healthcare workers? And it was like, immediately in our mind, we just think of like physical assaults, of course. Um, but it was describing here, like, okay, does that do those calculations also include verbal violence, uh, sexual assault, um, harassment, like verbal sexual assault? That doesn't necessarily include um, physical sensations, right? But that can absolutely still be traumatizing in many ways to these healthcare workers. So um, did you find, when you when you referenced that stat earlier, were you specifically referring to physical violence? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, the article just mentioned that uh, it's, let's see, violence against healthcare workers, right? So that's a great question. What exactly do they mean? What exactly do they classify as violence? I don't have a good answer for you, Logan, but whatever, whatever the classification is, it's being, it's being um, equated across all the different professions equally. There's an equal standard and it just shows that healthcare professionals are at 12 times the risk compared to the general population. Right. So that's pretty significant. Um, If you want to play another one, here's number two for you. What percentage, blank percentage of all workplace violence incidents that happen each year in the United States involve healthcare professionals? Hmm. Uh, uh, let's go 40. 40%. I'm going to go 50. 50%. Just, you know, the, the answer is 75% of all workplace violence incidents that happen each year in the U.S. involves healthcare professionals. Wow. Hmm. Three and four. 
Yeah, it's things uh, like that you don't really think about. I, you know, when you immediately go into this career, um, you know, uh, my wife is still considering a profession in this career. And it's one of the things we talk about. It's like, yeah, like, you know, this this career, of course, can be rewarding. But, you know, working from home as, as a software engineer, you don't have to think about those kind of things. My previous career um, in in finance, you know, I never, ever thought about the these kind of things. Right. And I in, in some ways. You know, this is always a weird topic for me to talk about just violence and mental illness. You know, I'm not saying every single one of those instances of violence necessarily involved mental illness, but probably some did, right? Um, because I started this work, this advocacy, this online, whatever the hell you want to call it, and, you know, releasing my thoughts into the internet sphere, started after the Sandy Hook shooting, right? And that Sandy Hook shooting, for the listeners who don't know, was when that person went into that elementary school in Connecticut and shot teachers, children. It was horrific. It came out that this individual had mental illness. I remember at that time in my life, this was probably 2012, 20, I think. I don't I don't remember exactly the date, so forgive me. But that's what compelled me, because I, I always feel really passionate that mental illness gets an unfair association with violence. Like, I think that there's, of course, a stigma there, and that's why I wanted to speak out, because I don't consider myself a violent person. But also, like, the, the risk is not zero, too. And, and I feel like I always kind of knew that going into this field of psychiatry. And that's kind of the spiel I give to medical students when they're, you know, maybe their first experience with um, people who are severely mentally ill. It's like, hey, look, there is an element of unpredictability here. And you do have to kind of have like this spidey sense and just be a little bit on guard. And I think it's, that's one of the true challenges, right? Of, I feel like of being really compassionate with patients is, is, you know, you, there has to be certain barriers. Um, you know, you kind of, you mentioned earlier, Rupa, like, how did you describe it? I, I call it like being cowboy, like cavalier, I think. Is that what you said? Complacent? Complacent. Some yeah. C word. I, I think of like, I was like a cowboy, I feel like as an intern. And what I mean by that is I didn't think necessarily always about the risks of violence. And um, I, I put myself one time too close to a patient who was extremely agitated and I did get attacked. Um, I had like bruises on my arm. It was a really weird traumatic experience for me. And I can kind of get into that, um, you know, later in this episode, but it was just odd. And ever since that instance, you know, I have radically changed my um, approach to patients because I want to help patients as much as I can, but I need to keep myself safe at all costs. How, how do you feel now looking back? Do you feel like, um, your quality of care was decreased because now you're a little bit more on, you know, on your spidey sense? Um, no, I, I think that, um, you know, Sadly, um, some of it was maybe uh, the hospital financial motive, because when we perform exams on patients, you're supposed to cover what five out of eight systems in the physical exam. And so on, on every single patient, I was always listening to heart and lungs or uh, palpating if necessary. Now I've really tried to accompany this, this or embody this role as the psychiatrist. It's like, okay, are you breathing? Are you able to talk to me without it hurting your chest? Okay, let's like sit here and just chill and really try to connect with each other as humans. And I I've, I think like the biggest thing I've really changed is like my physical distancing with patients. Like I'm not, no, we're not hugging. Like 
I like we'll shake hands, we'll bump fists and stuff, but like I I draw a firm boundary there. Like I am not hugging patients. I am only going to do physical exams if I truly feel it's clinically warranted, and the patient has to be um, in a good place too to to be able to manage that physical uh, exam. Yeah, I only asked that because when I was reading, um, I saw that with the higher workplace violence that that we that you know organizations are facing. Um, quality of patient care has been seen to go down. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lower threshold for IMing or restraining patients. Um, I'm sure across all inpatient facilities, we start seeing, you know, a very easy trigger finger to be like, oh, let's just howl all someone, mm-hmm. you know? And then where does that line, and, and I understand from the staff's perspective of wanting to be safe, but where do we start teetering that line of like, now it's truly, you know, self-fulfilling thought of like the patients that they're in a jail, right? Right. Like that is a very, I think a line that I've always kind of, um, the thought about in, in that respect, right? Like we, patients already come into the, into the unit kind of on high guard thinking that we're going to take away their rights or we're not going to listen to them or we're just going to assume that they're crazy. And then we do out of defense, tend to, you know, restrain patients chemically or physically, or, you know, um, I think I can imagine students, maybe like medical students not being comfortable going on to look at involuntary side because of the horror stories that they hear, or like, you know, the unpredictability that you talked about. Mm -hmm. And I think, I wonder how much of us not even knowing when we interact with patients, how much did it change? How much did the way we interact with patients change? Because there's going to be a lot of social cues, right? Maybe we're not making as much eye contact, even like little gestures that we're not even noticing and that are making the patients feel more other um, and not more like, you know, one of us kind of thing. Does that make sense? No, and I think you bring up a good point because I, I feel like when I answered that question, I was purely thinking of, my personal experience did it compromise my personal experience and at first it really did i i was um like not into psychiatry in a sense after i got attacked like like fuck this career like why did i do this you know this wasn't worth this this experience like i could have just stayed in finance and had a cush life definitely went through that and actually met with a therapist over time and kind of learned to you know reinvigorate my passion for psychiatry now that being said um i wonder how the patients would necessarily perceive my compassion in a sense from their perspective because i think you brought up some things that that i think maybe i did actually change my attitude whereas you know when i was initially cowboy logan intern logan um thought i could talk every patient down off a cliff i definitely lean i feel like on medicine more now um than i did when i was younger Um, and i i feel i do that for safety reasons for myself and my staff but, you know, from the perspective of a patient, has that experience influenced my um, threshold for using um, the needle, right? The intramuscular medicine? Probably. Yeah, I think that actually is a fair um, result of that experience. Or I don't know if fair is the right word, but definitely a result. Yeah. Any thoughts, June, from your experiences? Well, I think, um, you know, the sense that I'm getting here is it seems to be like we're in a constant battle, mm. unfortunately, with our patients. We're always talking and pulling, trying to figure out the best balance between providing adequate care, but also keeping everybody safe. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is one incident, right, to completely change um, your perspective, right? Like, if you if you were assaulted by a patient in a very, very, very severe way, I mean, 
I've heard people, we, we've, we've all heard of cases where the assault was so bad that the, the person, the victim doesn't come back to work. Right. Right. They, they actually leave the mental health field. And I think that's just, maybe even further than that. The in medicine period. Right. Yeah. Medicine right. period. Yeah. 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 And I mean, one is given the severity of certain circumstances, like I completely understand right um and i think it's just such a tragedy at the end of the day because we have such a shortage of mental health care professionals and it's an unfortunate part of our jobs that we have to be vigilant and mindful that there is this very risk a uh, very real risk of violence but at the same time how do we how do we maintain our empathy and how do we maintain our positive outlook that can kind of help us persevere um doing this job year after year mm-hmm. so i think those are very um interesting questions to think about and reflect on um but you know, that brings me to another point. We um, actually watched a video recently, and it's something that I've I been wanting to show you. Um, so this is a video that Rupa actually sent me a couple of days ago. Oh, okay. And it describes such an experience in an inpatient psychiatric unit. And I think we can have a fantastic discussion on it. I think we can. Um, there's a lot of areas where we can provide our insight um, from being in that kind of setting. Um, for the vast majority of these past two years um, for myself and Logan and the pa- past year for Rupa. Um, so Rupa, let's, uh, let, let's show Logan that, um, that little TikTok. Yeah. TikTok. By the way, if you want to watch our TikTok videos, you can go on that. <laughs> <Exactly. on, laughs> okay, wait, sorry. Focus, Logan, focus. Okay, wait. Turn this up. Okay. 36-year-old nurse Rena Ortega was alone in a room processing in a new patient to the Elgin Mental Health Center when authorities say the man attacked her. An occurrence so common in hospitals, there is a name for it, Code Gray. But on July 17th, by the time the Code Gray was sounded summoning help, nurse Ortega had been beaten nearly to death. That's one of our biggest fears, is that what if something happens? We are solely in the room with the patient alone. That did happen here at the Elgin Mental Health Center nearly three weeks ago when authorities say this man, Travis Turner, at six foot three and 196 pounds, began attacking the petite sized nurse who was registering him into the system. Rena Ortega was severely beaten with injuries to her face, skull, and upper body, life threatening injuries, according to prosecutors, who have now charged 18 year old Turner with attempted first degree murder and two counts of aggravated battery. We cannot only look at the fact that it's a person at a mental health facility. We have to look at the totality of the circumstances. And for us, especially because she received these injuries that were life-threatening, it was important to us that we bring the charges that fit this crime. Ortega was photographed by our news partner, the Daily Herald, at her nursing school graduation in 2013, honoring her then recently deceased mother. Tonight, Nurse Ortega is still hospitalized with critical wounds. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's powerful. And like the, the ultimate fear, I feel like, um, of healthcare workers, unless, you know, even further than that, being actually killed, right? Um, man, I mean, that, that was tough to watch. I feel like that's my first reaction to it, right? It's, yeah. it's that, that like visceral, nauseating reaction. Um, and it's like, yeah, man, how can we mitigate against that? Like we, we need to step up as clinicians, as you know, all of us are doctors. We're going to be the, the leaders of these kind of institutions. Like what kind of changes, um, would you want to see Rupa that, that you think could maybe most mitigate against those kind of horrific events? It's such a, you know, heavy question, Logan, because I don't think there is anything that 
I think this, I think the solution has to be multifaceted. I think in general administration needs to not worry so much about financial costs of how we're going to make our workplaces just even physically safe. Um, but also just kind of listen to the complaints of, you know, listen to the actual worries about their, uh, about their workers. So when I, when I, what I mean first is, you know, making sure that the unit, any psychiatric unit is properly, you know, constructed in a way that every room has two doors of escape, like egress and regress, right? There is facilities that I know that were turned over from old, like there were old medical units that were turned into psychiatric beds that are not designed to have safety plans where the rooms are designed that like the patient has one place where they can escape from and then everyone else and their staff can get away from. That's problem number one, right? That is an administration problem. That is an infrastructure problem that mm -hmm. should be, at the very least, be number one that we should make our setting safe. Um, second is that, you know, I think there is a tendency maybe to sugarcoat the danger of the workplace, especially to people that are getting hired, right? So mm -hmm. one of the articles that I read is that workplace violence makes... Um, you know, it's very difficult to retain nurses. So there's always high turnover. Right. And when you're in desperate need of nurses, I feel like you tend to maybe sugarcoat the actual danger that might be there um, and what exists and like really lay it out to people that this is what can happen. You might have a six foot three individual coming after you who might have a psychotic break, right? Um, I've, ha I've heard arguments that, you know, we need to, because of like just um, discrimination laws and all that, we can't just hire, you know, right. techs that are male. And you need to be able to bench 250 for this. Yeah. Job. So yeah. we can't do that. I actually apparently. heard that argument as well. Like that's like a legal discrimination thing that you can't be as explicit like that. Yeah. And then like what frustrates me is that I hear pregnant, petite, young techs like doing one-to-ones on some of the most aggressive patients. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not unique to one facility. Um, how do we, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to advocate for like, you know, discriminating anyone, any nurse that wants to get hired, but there has to be more transparency because it would, it's very difficult for me to believe that if you fully told someone that this is the danger on an involuntary side, a five foot three pregnant lady is going to be like, okay, let me be the one-to-one -one tech for this very aggressive patient. And I'm sure there's a space in the unit where she could go to maybe a less aggressive patient. And that comes down to having enough staff that there is freedom to do that, to kind of move around um, our, you know, our nurses and our techs in a way that like it's not so severely dependent that we only have one tech and that one tech is going to the most aggressive patient. Um, those are things I think that, you know, administration across the board has to be very um, mindful about. I think we need to take a step back and realize like we, you know, we're talking about workplace violence kind of a whole this episode. We, we don't want to get into any like identifiers of when and where we've experienced violence and realize like all these stats that we're referencing and June referenced that stat of raising rates. And I'm sure you have your own stats too. Like there have been security guards even on units at where this place has occurred. I, I wonder that video you guys showed me if there was a guard on that unit too. Yeah. That video unfortunately sounds like, I mean, at least to me, it sounds like it was a smaller lady who was in a room without a, without a way to escape. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that was trapped in a room. Yeah. And I'm just going to piggyback on what you were talking about, Rupa, because this is one of my biggest frustrations, right? We know um, that 
the safest way to position yourself in a room is so that you are so that essentially that you have access to the door right so you essentially want to position yourself between the patient and the door but the problem with that and the counter argument to that is if you're between the patient and the door that can lead to a position where the patient feels mm-hmm. um, they're in an unsafe yep. environment um, so the, the 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 most common suggestion that I hear being thrown out is that patients and clinicians should sit in such a way that they can both easily exit through the door. Yeah. Right. So that would be one. But ideally, what we want to see happen is we want to see these rooms designed um, specifically for safety. Right. We want to we want to see a, a room where maybe there's an exit on both sides of the room. Yeah. And each the patient and the clinician can both sit um, by a door without having their exits blocked. How common is that in a psychiatric inpatient facility? I'm going to be honest. I've never seen a facility designed that way, unfortunately. And who knows? That's my limited experience. There might be a ton of them out there. But the point here is that my frustration is that there's no standardization in how these mental health inpatient facilities are designed. And I wonder why, because we do recognize with all these all these incidents that's happening and and the media that is getting in social um, and the tension that is getting within um, social media that the propensity for violence, for especially healthcare workers to experience violence in this kind of setting is very, very real. Um, and given that this is, a, this is a setting where we need more kind-hearted individuals to help take care of those people that are most in need, it just paints a picture where it's difficult for everybody that's involved, yeah. right? And I feel like one of the systemic changes that could happen is we need clear regulations on how these inpatient facilities are designed. We need these facilities to be designed with, with patient and staff safety first. And we talked about this a lot on this podcast, right? It's not just about safety. You know, when it comes to the design of these hospitals, they have bland walls. I right. mean, essentially bare bones, like there's yeah. nothing there and you don't have any of your belongings. So like, why not more windows? Why not more vibrant colors? And there's so many things that we can do to um, at least create a better physical space that's more conducive to healing and harmony. Um, but unfortunately, with um, the way our healthcare system is structured today, at least that's not the reality today. I hope that one day in the future, it could be. And I hope conversations like this is the first step to achieving that goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like that point you made about kind of like trying to create like a standard. That's why I mean, look, I mean, I don't want to get too much into politics, but I do think like a single payer structure approach to healthcare could be better because at the end of the day, in my honest opinion, it's like you can't run a typical psychiatry inpatient ward well with profit in mind, right? And just like trying to burn and churn, get as much revenue as possible, you know, focusing on quality. Um, One thing I'm kind of learning about healthcare as a whole is that psychiatry is typically a lost leader at the hospital. Typically it does not um, generate revenue for the hospital, but hospitals are required by law to have this kind of thing. So I think we just need to admit that like, look, we psychiatry units can't be run like the way they need to be and actually necessarily turn that profit that that growth that the hospital always sees i think we need to really kind of advocate for that that you know maybe if we can improve uh staffing ratios the structures of these rooms to set them up in a safer way 
um, is so important. Both of you guys have already said that. I'm not gonna repeat the same thing necessarily. But I also think it's really trying to be more creative and intentional with the space, like the colors you touched upon. But my even personal experience in a psych ward when I was a patient, and very much like a lot of the psych wards we work at, you don't even get a chance to go outside. There's no access to exercise. Like, so if you have this pent up anger, this aggression, this frustration that it's like, I'm fucking locked in this place. This sucks, let me out. A lot of patients voice that same thing to us. I wish we could have some modality to get that kind of energy out. And what I'm thinking of, you know, you were there, Rupa, whenever that was, a couple of weeks ago or last week, um, we took a, a self-defense class at this Taekwondo mixed martial arts place. And so they had all these like heavy bags you can kick, punch, just go as hard as you want on. I think a lot about like, what if we could have um, a, a de-escalation aggression room, just where you put on boxing gloves, you just like, there's a heavy bag, you just go nuts, get all that energy out. Um, I really wonder, would that lead to less administration of intramuscular medicine, less incidents of actual workplace violence on a person, which like, dude, go punch the punching bag. I know you're pissed off at the world. Don't punch anybody, but go punch the punching bag. Go, like, let it all out, go hard. Go, like, you know, burning all those calories for 30 minutes. Like, I think it's hard to be, in a sense, knock on wood, plastic, as <laughs> agitated after that. I don't know, what do you guys think? Am I just talking out of my ass here? I think there's definitely creative ways that are untapped. You know, we did that defense class and I even walked away feeling great after that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that- What'd you learn? What'd you learn at the defense class that made you feel so great? I think one, A, I was equipped with that feeling of like, listen, I have had these moves now and even if it's placebo, you feel a little bit more confident in how um, you, you know, in the back of your mind that you could get you get yourself out of a situation or even just a little bit better. Right. Um, I've, I've, you know, luckily haven't been in this experience, but I've, I'd like to think that I'd be a kind of fight kind of, if I was in that situation, I would, you know, run away or something like that. But I can also see myself just kind of getting, you know, just staying there and freezing if I, you know, a patient was ever coming to me or anything. Um, mm. but uh, having that defense class just showed me that like, if, you know, we, we kind of did mock things of like someone coming at us, like I'm a little bit more equipped to maybe be able to escape if I was in that situation. Um, I think when we talk about the standardization, I definitely think having like these self-defense courses, um, and you know, people coming in telling us like exactly what we can do and what moves we can do that are like protects us from the hospital and like, you know, lawsuits and everything. I think that's super important too. Um, because I think, you know, just a module online isn't going to really teach us how to protect ourselves. Um, I think it has to be kind of like an in-person demonstration of like moves that you can do like easy moves, right? Like one of the moves that we learned was like always if someone grabs your wrist, you try to just like release your wrist from the side where the thumb is because, you know, it's only the thumb there versus the other side would be have four fingers. And I never thought that, right? You can escape like someone's hold very quickly if you do that. Um, so I think that was one of the um, the fun things about that defense class. And I'm glad that, you know, our program afforded that opportunity. Um, and then I 
agree with Logan. There are so many untapped ways of, you know, kind of helping patients and, and letting them express what they need to express, right? Um, seeing them for 15 minutes, asking them how they slept and all that kind of stuff isn't going to be as therapeutic as, as I think we can be. And I've seen, you know, in TikTok where I get a lot of information, I've seen psych wards in, you know, different countries, um, like a lot of European countries where patients are able to use their phone for a certain amount of time. You know, I've, I've seen video diaries of people in the psych ward saying like, this is how, what I'm doing today. This is how my day was. Mm-hmm. And that could just be their creative outlet, you know, their connection to the outside world and they can feel like they're not just caged up. Um, so there's definitely a lot of untapped potential and solutions we haven't even, I guess, considered. Um, but I guess also at the same time, I will be fair and say that, you know, sometimes we have to deal with a more acute situation of just, you know, decreasing the amount of workplace violence and finding like more basic, um, kind of solutions before we can tap into those like extra creative kind of solutions. You do, you know, I agree with you there, Rupa. I mean, I don't think there's ever a shortage of the potential, um, ideas that we can have to improve. Uh, safety for our healthcare workers and ultimately improve care for our patients. Um, but I do want to backtrack a little bit because you said something very interesting that I picked up on. Mm-hmm. You said defense and then you also threw out runaway, right? Yeah. So to me, those two things are kind of different and I'm going to explain why. My biggest fear, if I was to ever get attacked in a hospital setting, is how... If essentially, if I defend myself too well, mm-hmm. at what point when that when the administration is reviewing the case, when they're looking at that event a day later from a little camera that's on the mm-hmm. wall, they're they're you know, and they're just taking a basically right Monday Monday morning quarterbacking, right? And right. they're reviewing the events that happened. At what point does defense look like you're trying to hurt the patient? Right. Because I have seen certain cases where um, staff members were disciplined and even let go because they intervened a little bit too aggressively to a patient's agitation or act of violence. So that's always what I have in the back of my mind. And to this day, I have not gotten a good answer for that. So unfortunately, if I was to ever get attacked by a patient and I don't have any other options, if I can't run away, I think given the fact that I'm a resident, given the fact that I have hundreds of thousands of dollars of um, student loans that I need to pay off, given that I've spent over a decade at this point pursuing this profession, that's a lot to risk. Yeah. It's a lot to risk. So I think I just, I'll probably just get beat up, probably go into fetal position, just get kicked on a little bit. Hmm. And I feel like in a way, I mean, of course, physically, um, it's, the risks are higher, but if I just extrapolate out and kind of think about what is going to be the most detrimental to my life, I almost feel like if I did defend myself and, you know, who knows what can happen in that moment when you have your adrenaline pumping, who knows how you're going to react? Who knows? Like you meant to just push the patient off and it, it may have come out in a different way and you don't even realize it until you look at it on the computer screen the next day. So who knows how things could turn out? So I always have that fear. And I feel like that fear is just as real as being attacked by a patient. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's tough because it's like, you know, even in my personal experience of being attacked, I know you witnessed uh, an attack, Rupa, mm-hmm. um, recently, sadly. Um, you know, it's hard. It's like, what was I thinking in the moment? It's like, I don't even know. Everything happened so fast, right? It's, it's hard to really 
No, exactly. And like, can we make sound decisions in a state of heightened, you know, like sympathetic fight or flight, like literally just wildness. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's, I think both parts are important, right? Preparing in some ways, it's almost like we need to anticipate that something like this can happen in your career, right? And so maybe taking those defense classes ahead of time is um, super important, but I also think that afterwards is equally as important. Um, One thing I did that I'm really proud of is I did access the um, employee assistance program that my hospital did offer, which was cool. Um, And there was like some other program that my, uh, the hospital offered, I can't even remember what it was, but it was like acute stress workplace Shit, I don't know. Some some nurse talked to me. And it was very nice, and and sadly, she actually shared the, a similar experience. She was like, "I was attacked," and like that's why I have this role at the hospital. It's like I help. Sadly, like there's a role at the hospital for that yeah. person, as as kind of crazy as it is. But at least you know if you're out there listening and you've witnessed something like this, if you've gone through something like this, I think acknowledging that it is extremely, extremely challenging and accessing some kind of mental health resources, I think the best and easiest place to start is the one that your company should be paying for, that stupid employee assistance program. I shouldn't call it stupid, it's amazing. I think good things about it. Um, and if not there, then accessing whatever means you can to try to get help right away. Yeah. And I think also a lot of the times is having an open dialogue with your colleagues. I think sometimes we don't talk about things enough, um, but I think um, you we find that the same fears that we have are shared amongst a lot of our uh, peers. And I think knowing and not feeling isolated and knowing that, you know, those views are shared and having a collaborative communication is so, at least for me, was very therapeutic after witnessing, you know, what I, an incident at work. So, um, I think when everyone came together, I think that's the best way to kind of advocate for change. Um, and luckily we had, you know, a good response. So Hmm. in my, in my, in, in, in terms of like how I felt supported, I'll say that to be fair. I'm going to respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, look, here's, here's my it's two It's different cents. though. And um, I wasn't, I wasn't the one attacked. It, right. right. So, right. but like what I always think a lot about in this thing, if, if you guys are just audio listeners out there, like, look, I'm six foot, I weigh 237 pounds this morning. Like I'm a pretty big person, not all psychiatry residents or uh, healthcare workers in, in this are built like me. And so I always think about my colleagues who are, let's say like smaller than me, right? Like what, what are their emotions? What are their experiences? I actually want a future episode. I wanted to interview Michaela Margolis, our colleague, mm-hmm. and she was, she's a very small person. Like, what is it like that? And how is that kind of experience different? Like when you guys were researching this, I'm curious, you know, like I found risk factors for violence towards healthcare workers, but I almost wonder like are healthcare workers who are more petite, who are smaller, maybe of like female gender, are they more susceptible to violence? I would sadly assume so. Yeah, but I also think I'll give the caveat from the female perspective in the room is that I am a little bit more on guard. I trust mm. my gut a lot more than I think maybe some of my male counterpart counterparts will. Um, also, it's a dialogue at my home. Be safe. You know, have your guard up. You And, you know, um, our program director actually had told me very early on, she was like, we think that we can predict um, people's behavior, but we're the worst right. predictors of it, right? So I kind of keep that in my mind, in the back of my mind. You know, I, I am a young uh, a female. I recently 
you know, injured my knee. I'm walking around mm -hmm. with a knee brace on the unit. So my head's always on a swivel. So I don't know if that's just, you know, it, maybe we don't think it's not the forefront for mm. you, Logan, you know, at that time or before it wasn't because. Yeah, that's a good point. You know. And I'll give my input here too. Um, I think I'm going to qualify, qualify myself as uh, being on the smaller side. Mm -hmm. I'm five, seven. 155 pounds on a good day. It's not the size of the dog. It's the size of the, the fight in that dog, right, Jen? I ain't got no fight. Like I said, I'm, not even, I'm getting kicked on. Right. You see, he literally um, said fetal position, Logan. Yeah, fetal position. I got it all planned out. I mean, uh, he talks this now, but I've seen him on the basketball court. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, look, I love inpatient psychiatry. Um, even though we've basically spent the past 30 minutes talking about how dangerous it can be and some of the unfortunate events that happen there. I think it's a place where you can meet patients at their time of most need and you can intervene for them. Mm. I've seen people come in in one condition and leave a completely different person. And I've, I do really believe that it's a place, um, given all this faults and given all the potential uh, areas that we can improve on, it's still a place where there's real healing involved and people do leave um a lot of the times with positive benefit and it makes me feel like all this was worth it to see, to help somebody you know mm -hmm. in that way to to um, intervene for them acutely in that sort of manner so i'm always at a conflict between you know chasing something that i'm passionate about and weighing that with um the potential for violence and where i've kind of landed on you know and who knows what kind of job i'll take once i graduate but if I'm taking a job in an inpatient psychiatric hospital or even the emergency department, and these are the two most areas where um, patients are the most decompensated, they're the most um, in what we will call a crisis state, right? So the risk for violence is understandably the highest in those settings. And these are both settings that I love taking care of patients in. And I am seriously considering a, a future career um, in both of these settings. But... I think I would like it to be remote. Hmm. I want to do it virtually. And I know there's so many problems with virtual patient evaluations. There's so many technological issues that can happen. There's so many frustrations. And look, patients oftentimes don't enjoy the virtual um, telehealth experience. And I understand all of that. I, I'm going to be honest. I myself don't really enjoy it either. There's always an issue of you know, just being there with another human being, being able to perceive their emotions and just using your emotional intelligence to guide your interview, you do lose a lot of that in a virtual setting. But like I said, I also have a commitment to my family, you know, to come back, to come back home, you know, safe. And I want to be doing this job for a long time. And all it takes is one incident. And look, it's just so random. Like, who knows? We hear about things happening to other people, but it could be any one of us. Right. And you never know. All it takes is one time. So just because I have that fear um, and because I am a smaller guy, I feel like most, you know, look, on average, I'm smaller than the average person. So it makes sense that when we're in the inpatient psychiatric hospital, a lot of the patients are a lot bigger than me. Mm -hmm. So that is at the back of my mind. If, they, if this person really put his mind to it, he can probably pin me up against the wall and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. Right. So. If I ever work in a, a setting like this, um, and like I said, I love these settings, I think I would seriously consider doing it on a remote-only basis. Um, and with that said, I want to ask you guys, like, how often, 
Okay, so we, we we've spent we've all spent significant amounts of time in inpatient hospitals, inpatient psych hospitals, and emergency departments. So let's let's give the audience a little bit perspective, um, you know, from the insights that we've garnered over the past two years. On average, how often do you hear of an incident of violence happening in an inpatient psychiatric unit? What would you say? How often? How often? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I looked up these stats across like studies, but I guess in my personal life, that's kind of, that's very hard to answer. I'm not sure. Cause I don't know, like Rupa said earlier, like sadly, I don't know if it, you know, it's not like we have a group chat about this stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and like, there's almost, I feel like these weird, um, <laughs> clicks right in the psych ward. Like sadly, like I, I wish I almost interacted with the technicians more, but like the way our roles are and everybody is so busy, like I don't get to talk about their experience. Like I wonder like what things happen that just maybe the technicians always know about, the nurses always know about, like these channels of communication are definitely not perfect, right? So man, I, I have no idea. I'm not sure how to answer that. That's a great point. Um, maybe we need to bring on a, a psychiatric technician because they have a very difficult job they do right. i mean we as physicians right we evaluate patients and then we can kind of go to our office and put in orders write our notes do everything from you know a computer yeah but other staff members have to be supervising the patients um you know their entire shift mm -hmm. and of course with uh increased time that you spend with patients especially ones that are um, actively violent or aggressive, the risk for violence occurring, you know, of course, increases. All right, so maybe maybe uh, this question instead then. Um, that video that we watched, it said, one of the things that stood out to me was that these incidents happen so often that there's a name for it. Code gray. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How often, all right, so Rupa, can you explain to us what exactly code gray is and how often does it actually happen in an inpatient psychiatric unit from your experience? <sighs> From my experience, I think I've probably heard it around four to five times in the hospital, If even if I wasn't on the unit. Um, so like, you know, just in, on the medicine floor is kind of hearing it, right? Um, so I think you'd probably be more eloquent in saying yeah. what a co code gray is and describing it. Well, like security alert. That's yeah, what security I alert. Yeah, like, just get the security. To hear yeah. you say you've only heard it four times ever, I'm like, wait, like, a month or a week? Yeah, I was about to, I mean, I was about to say, like, bro, I've heard that be, shit fucking twice a week, yeah. twice a day to, sometimes. I mean, to what be fair. Is it Tuesday or like, you know, uh, <laughs> As, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just luck of the draw. You know, we're in different places at different times. Yeah. Um, interesting. Interesting you brought up Code Gray. There was a stat that I looked at. Logan, can you find it? Logan, can you find it? You can do yes. it, Logan. What? <laughs> Okay, the, uh, um, it was talking about uh, overall rates of physical incidents. No shock here, I think. Um, there's more physical incidences during evening shift between 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. versus day shift, uh, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. And this really had me thinking a lot. Like, is this more about the patients? Are patients in a better mood necessarily um, between 7.30 and 3? I, I Maybe that's definitely part of it. Is there more going on during the day at a lot of these units between 7 and 3? Maybe. Um, and then I also even was thinking about like, I don't know if this is grossly true, but it seems to me anecdotally that the 7 to 3 is a more desirable shift than the 3 to 11. And so I find sometimes this isn't always true, but sometimes more seasoned workers take that uh, day shift and more new workers take that evening shift. 
What yeah. do you guys think about like just this difference that I found in this study that looked at um, 284 nurses um, in the VA between 2007 to 2010? All right. So most violence occurs in the evenings, you said, right? Yes. All right. So I think one physical of Physical violence, by physical the way. Violence. Physical instance yeah. of violence. All right. So I think one of them, one of the factors is that during daytime hours, um, especially in inpatient units, there's more staff members present. Mm -hmm. um, you have the entire clinical team there, but oftentimes, you know, like 5 p.m., the typical American workday, right? I'm just going to use that as an example. Um, a lot of the staff members will head out and then it's the evening team, right? Mm -hmm. And although it is still properly staffed, there's not as much right. um, eyes uh, on the unit at that time. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to get into a discussion about the different types of violence that we have. Mm -hmm. There's three main different types of violence, right? There's what we call impulsive violence. Um, you just have low frustration tolerance. You know, I tell you, oh, Logan, you're looking especially mm -hmm. angry today. Mm -hmm. And you're just so mad you can't control yourself. You just punch me in the face. Right. Right. Impulsive. There's psychotic violence. So these are patients. Maybe they have auditory hallucinations. They're like, yo, you got to punch this guy or, or the devil is going to stab you in the gut. Right. Some, yeah. some crazy stuff like that. Right. And then there's this other type of violence, which accounts for 17% of violence, which is called psychopathic. So this is... This is the type of person that's premeditated, um, planning out mm. and being very calculated and even even maybe like a revengeful type of violence. Right. Like, oh, this nurse didn't get me my ice cream on time. So mm -hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get her. Mm. And unfortunately, what I've seen happen from time to time is these patients, you know, after they've been there for a few days, they know they know what time, this, you know, certain staff members right. leave. They know what time the unit gets kind of quiet and kind of empty. And unfortunately, I feel like they look for an opportunity to strike and maybe it just so happens, you know, during those evening hours um, due to staffing issues, they may just be a best time if somebody was choosing to go down a path like that. Yeah, it's crazy, it's scary. To, crazy to think about that. But I feel like, you know, at least bringing these things to light. Uh, releasing them to our, you know, I think it's millions of listeners at this point, right? Millions of listeners. <laughs> bring, tens of millions. Yeah, bringing this up to our millions of listeners that, you know, hopefully we can all advocate for changes in the hospital. Like I said earlier, every one of us is going to be um, eventually in a more leadership role in a healthcare organization. It certainly doesn't feel that way right now. <laughs> um, but uh, so look, we've we've talked to you, Rupa, about this topic for um, a very long time. We appreciate all your time on this topic. What are your final thoughts? I'm going to bring in some optimism. I really think that this is something that many departments, many people can come together and really find that great boundary of a, uh, that ideal boundary of patient care and keeping everyone safe. I think as long as like each one of us um, takes ownership and kind of self-regulates ourselves and kind of, again, goes back to um, you know, trusting your gut and talking, bringing up these issues and, and, and talking to staff and understanding what they're going through and not just like writing off the like nurses as being, you know, annoying or petty mm. or whatever it may be, right? Kind of acknowledging those and then, you know, just having open discussion, I think can go a lot more way, a, a lot more than we think it can. Um, I think as residents, sometimes we're just, we're overwhelmed with our work. I mean, I've definitely felt that like, you know, overwhelmed with the work and stuff like that, where I kind of forget, right. Um, that, you know, even if the change isn't made, at least I can bring it up or I can at least support my, in, the nurses, right. After witnessing attack, I attack, I really went 
out of my way to talk to all the nurses, letting them know that I, I know how they feel and that I appreciate them. So I always walk out. I always appreciate the text now. And I think little things like that make people feel more supported. And if that's the least I can do at this point, um, making people uh, feel like, you know, the residents and administration know, then that that's what that's what I'm going to get out of it. Um, and then continue to have those coming with my colleagues and talking about, you know, certain ways that we can, um, address and maybe standardize the care that we have at units. So that's my take on it. I love the optimism. That's exactly <laughs> why we brought you on to balance out our negativity. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a total. No. I'm just, I'm just All right. Good, good episode. Thanks Cheers. so much, Dr. Gill. We appreciate you. <laughs>